Welcome to the podcast. We're street smart, business smart, all kinds of smart people share their insights into the world of marketing, career journeys, and personal growth. So sit back and prepare to get enlightened with your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast, where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. For me in my own career and personal growth journey, stepping outside of my comfort zone has been an area of development and tremendous growth that has driven my success. And it really kicked into high gear when first deciding to go out on my own and launch my own business. But I wanted to take it a step further, and my mentor, Marcus Glover has been volunteering for years in the penitentiary system and introduced me to Defy Ventures, where they work with incarcerated men and women and coach them on creating their own business and prepare them for a better life when they are released. And I've been volunteering with them for the past year or so, and it's been a tremendous, life-changing, eye-opening experience for me. And one of my biggest of many takeaways is all about the concept of second chances, and it's really put life in a completely different perspective for me. And my guest today, Sherry Garcia, is the founder of Cornbread Hustle, a staffing agency for second chances. She's passionate about helping convicted men and women and people find recovery and find transformation through employment and entrepreneurship. And as someone who has reinvented her own life, Cherry wanted to create a company to help others do the same. So before starting Cornbread Hustle, Cherry founded her own transformation and recovery through inventing a tanning bed, which I definitely want to hear about, and getting a career in the TV news industry. And she's developed expert skills for marketing and PR, and she uses those talents to help individuals getting out of prison rebrand themselves to become the person they've always wanted to be and get noticed by the people that they want to meet and facilitating those second chances. Sherry and I uh, chatted recently and we swapped our stories and her story just completely floored me. And we'll get to that in a second. And I was blown away with her resilience, tenacity, and what she has created with Cornbread Hustle. And I'm thrilled to have her on today and share her story and a whole lot more. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Certainly appreciate it. So why don't we start and give my tribe a little bit of your super fascinating origin story. We'd love to hear you know, where you started because I think that's critical to the entire story and how you got to where you are today. And we'll go from there. Yeah. So when I told people I was starting a for-profit company banking on the success of felons, everybody thought I was crazy and they were absolutely right. I am crazy. And that craziness began in high school when I decided to try a pesky little drug called meth. And honestly, um, it was, you know, I was told that it would help me lose weight, get good grades, stay up late. And so I was like, sign me up. So I went from being on the cheerleading team, the softball team, the pitcher of the softball team, the news anchor of the school to having pretty much nothing, which wasn't looking back, was a huge deal because when you're just getting fresh out of high school, you didn't really have anything to begin with. Um, but I didn't really get a good head start on life. I had, I got arrested a whole bunch of times. I never caught a felony charge. Nothing really traumatic ever happened in terms of my record, but I dove, I, I dove straight into entrepreneurship. I invented a tanning bed and as I'm inventing this product and working overseas with bringing something to life, I guess I never realized until after the fact that entrepreneurship fills a great void for people in drug recovery because the highs are super high and the lows are really low. So taking a drug addict from 
a very chaotic life to a stable nine to five with a schedule is like a big leap. So I've, I started volunteering in a prison, uh, a volunteer for a program called Prison Entrepreneurship Program, which was originally created by the founder of Defy. And it kind of proved what I was thinking, which is these people have really great skills and entrepreneurial dreams. So as these guys were getting out of prison, I started getting Facebook friend requests from people with neck tattoos. And I was like, okay, I guess they're getting out. And then pretty quickly realized that just straight up becoming an entrepreneur isn't realistic for just anybody. Um, so then I started helping people find the jobs that aligned with what they really wanted and kind of worked them through how I found my recovery. And long story short, that's how Cornbread Hustle was born. I spent like an entire month placing people in jobs and woke up one day and thought, wow, I worked myself out of a job. So... <laughs> guess I should figure out a way to monetize this. I'm certainly not doing a nonprofit because I'm going to, I'm not going to spend my time raising money. I need to raise men and women. Right. And thank you to the nonprofits out there because without them, I couldn't do what I'm doing. But for me asking for money every single month for a different reason, just isn't my cup of tea. I, I hear you. And that story is fascinating. First and foremost, kudos to you. Kudos to you for, for, turn, for turning your life around. And I talk about it. One of the big takeaways when I go in and, and meet these men and women is the sheer ingenuity. They, all they have is time and they got to figure out how to survive and they got to figure out how to feed themselves and take care of themselves. And that breeds innovation. And it's just been incredible to see the ideas that come out of that. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So let's dig into, you know, Cornbread Hustle. And what are some of the challenges for those of us, for those out there who are not involved in our world, what are some of the challenges when working with formerly incarcerated folks entering the workforce? Like, what are some of their challenges coming out, you know, as, as human beings? And, and how do you screen them for that to make sure that they're ready to reenter the workforce for your clients who are paying you? Yeah, that's crazy. People, people laugh when I say people pay me to, for a felon. <laughs> but um, I will tell you that out of 100 people who show interest in getting into our program or getting a job, we five make it. So um, we have about a 5%. I would say, I can't say success rate because we really have at the end of the day, pretty much a 99% success rate when it comes to people that we did choose. But when it comes to allowing people into our program and placing them in a job, 5%. Right. Um, and you know, the bar is actually set pretty low. We we just want you to show up to an interview on time, show that you want it. Um, all of our recruiters are formally incarcerated, and there's a reason for that. Not many people understand. It's easy to see on the surface when Donald Trump says, hey, let's do second chances and give um, nonviolent drug offenders a second chance, and boom. Like, everybody believes that all it takes is for an employer no. to make the decision to hire a second chance person. No, that's where the, that's where the work begins. You have to manage them differently. You have to um, really vet them. They come from very manipulative backgrounds. So Susie Q, your HR person, is going to be manipulated pretty easily. And so <laughs> as I'm saying all this stuff, some I could see an HR person listening to this being like, so why the hell do I want to give a second chance? Well, the flip side of it is I will tell you that my employees will work seven days a week from 5 a.m. to midnight 
and I don't even have to ask them to, and they could be poached by every single one of my competitors and offered a six-figure paying job, and they'd never take it. It's loyalty so, and hard work, and that, and they're loyal as F. They're loyal as hell, and that's something that's embedded um, in these folks, and those are the type of skills that you really have to tap into, those soft skills. So, you know, now you got somebody at a client, and they're working. How do you make sure that they stay straight? How do you do that? What are the, what are the check-ins there? So we have a few um, different ways. First of all, our interview process, we, we have a series of questions that we get answered um, without asking the questions. So it's kind of our internal checklist. One, we always start the interview by telling them about our weakness, whatever that is. I'll start every job interview telling them that I used to be a meth addict and I'm currently only five months sober from alcohol. So I totally just made them comfortable to tell me whatever... So yeah, I'm almost have just became their counselor. So they're going to start telling me all types of stuff about their life. And I can detect if these are excuses versus circumstances. Mm -hmm. I can detect if they're to their past, if they're taking accountability. And so some of the things I look for is do they accept accountability for their past? Are they making excuses or are they just explaining their circumstances? And the third thing is, do they really want something better for themselves? You know, I don't know if you they saw have to want it. I don't know if you saw the movie Upside, but there's if you there's a lot of people who come for an interview just to prove to somebody, whether it be their mom, their probation officer, or unemployment, that they're making effort. And I use air quotes. So you want to see more than that. things, and then also keeping them engaged. We tell them first and foremost that they're coming to a job interview to get in our community not to get a job. So right. if we decide to allow them into our community, we tell them within three months, you're eligible to be a peer mentor. A lot of them really like that because us former addicts, whether we're addicted to selling drugs, addicted to doing drugs or addicted to just toxic behavior, we are self-destructive and we really don't give a F about ourselves. None of us do. No matter how successful we get, we just at the very root, we just don't. So when we are doing things, because other people need us, it pushes us. And um, the other thing is within six months, you get a Cornbread Hustle membership card and they get push notification texts that say like, hey everybody, show up to this movie theater tonight to get a free movie. That's just cool. show your Cornbread Hustle card. So you're really, you're really, it's not just jobs. I mean, you're building, you're building a community and you're giving, them, you're, you're giving them purpose and that's fascinating. So as someone who's an expert in this field, what are some of those skills that incarcerated people have that other folks who have never been incarcerated don't have? What are some of those really high in-demand skills? Let's take away the fact that these people have been incarcerated. What makes them more valuable as a candidate than somebody else for the same job? Okay, I have a great story. So the other day, somebody came into my office. He was going for a $10 an hour housekeeping job. Now, a lot of our people come to our interviews and it's a job they don't even want. They just want to be introduced to the network in the community because they know there's no promises, but they know something good could happen and will. All positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm looking at this guy's resume and I was like, why are you here to fold sheets? You have like, he had coding experience, medical IT. And he was like, Sherry, I keep getting offered six figure positions. And once they run the background, they just say no. Nope. And so he's like, so I'm at the end. And he was bitter. He was angry. He was crying. He was like, so I'm going to take whatever I need to take. And I was like, Hey, here at Cornbread Hustle, we don't just give anybody's whatever they need to take. 
we give them a job where they're going to feel valued and have purpose. So with that being said, give me one second. I have to go upstairs. So I came upstairs. There's this um, startup company next door to me. I had remembered they came by our office one day and he was super frustrated. He said, Sherry, I don't care what people did. I don't care if it was murder. I don't care. I just need somebody that's willing to work and have and has the skills because all these people these coders he couldn't really depend on and there's right. all these millennials and you Can't know that's me. a whole different story and so i came up to him i handed him the resume i said hey what do you think of this he looks at it and he said sherry if this guy really exists i'll hire him today right now wow. i brought the guy up there and so wow. now he's a medical coder for a startup making good money happy the startup is happy because they could afford a great employee that's showing up every day and the employee is grateful. And this is a guy that showed up just for a housekeeping job. That's so amazing. these are the types of stories that happen every single day. And you made money from that placement, right? Yes. I'm currently uh, making money still. Yes. It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, it's both ends and there's no reason that what you're doing camp is a capitalistic society. You're providing a service. You should be compensated for that. So speaking of let's, let's talk about, you know, when you're talking to companies and you're getting negative feedback or pushback saying, Hey, we do not want to hire, you know, a felon, you know, how do you push back on that? Um, I say, cool. Good luck. I really don't care. I'm not chasing anybody. And, um, it's just not. So it's I don't a deal breaker right away. Like if they're not even open to it, or all right, let's just say, hey, hey, Cherry, like we've never done that before. A little bit of role play here. Hey, you know, we love your model. It's really interesting, but you know, our other employees may not feel comfortable working with with felons. You know, what could you do to reassure me? So you know, one thing that I would say is a lot of my clients that come to me, they say, hey. They want to be second chance friendly, but they want to be choosy on the second chance. So they'll be like, hey, um, if you could just give me somebody that like might have sold drugs and maybe a nonviolent drug charge. And then I just kind of educate them on our stats and what I've seen. And I tell them, it's so funny to hear them when I first say our murderers are our best employees. And they're always like, what? And by the end of the call, I've actually loosened somebody up enough through education it's not me you know how political parties just bash each other and right. don't listen to each other's ideas it's me just educating them on different stories and what i have seen and i just tell them like your non-violent drug offender how much likely are they to relapse and again i'm in recovery so i'm not talking bad about anybody but then how much less likely is it for this guy who had a murder charge when he was 18 because he got in a gang fight that he's going right. to relapse to murder again? So, yeah. and how many other people are like you and just would <clears throat> never take a murderer? So this guy's never it's, gonna leave your country. Right, it, and, it's, and it's circumstance too. And I think you have to really like, I mean, listen, murder is murder. Like, don't get me wrong on that, but there's certain times you take a kid from the streets at 17, 18, and he was coming up, you know, in the hood and underprivileged home, and he got himself into some shit and some gang violence. That's real. That's real life. And this guy has just rehabbed himself. He found himself. He found religion. He found God. He found himself, and he changed, and he got educated, got his diploma, and he's ready to go. That's a real second chance, mm -hmm. right? That's circumstance. And, and we're not talking about mass murders. You're not putting, you know, the yeah. Ted Bundys of the world back out there. We're not talking about that. But this is, this is real serious. So let's, let's pivot on that and let's talk about prison reform, something that for me personally, I never thought it would be something that I was even interested in until I got into Defy. And I really understood what this program did from the recidivism rate and how much it reduced it. But not only that, how these type of programs save taxpayers money 
by educating and putting good people back on the street. Um, so let's talk a little bit around you know, prison reform, rehab, and training, and how you've seen the success of that uh, specifically in, in your state, in Texas. So the one thing that I would say that makes the biggest difference in prisons is volunteers. Forget the programs, the curriculum, the setup, it's straight up the volunteers. I've been volunteering in prison for five years for different programs and learning all about different curriculums. Our company um, just got engaged to create an entire curriculum for a prison tour for another organization who's doing a country um, prison tour. So when it comes to curriculums and in-prison activities, like we have that on lock, but that's not what makes the difference it's the right. volunteers because at the end of the day most people in prison feel like who cares what's my purpose anyways and does anybody give a shit of almost nine times out of ten if you're talking to somebody on an intimate level and really asking them what really got them to change what was their aha moment it's always a person not a program that's it it's 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 crazy and you know firsthand when you know for me it was cre like personally, it was, it was hard for me. I mean, in, in the Defy program, I mean, you're talking to people who have committed some terrible crimes and you're a foot away from them and you're connecting with them on, on a human basis. I mean, these are fellow humans and you're talking to them and you're understanding that they're humans too and they have families and they fucked up and they made a mistake and they don't want to be defined by that mistake. And they are so appreciative of us coming in and sharing our time and our expertise and, and genuinely caring about them. And I implore everybody, if you have any inkling of stepping out of your comfort zone and finding an opportunity to help another fellow human, try to look for these programs and there's plenty of resources and, you know, I'll share some links when we get, you know, the podcast up. So let's pivot and, and get a little personal if you don't mind. Great. Let's, let's talk about addiction and it's a problem that millions of us face. How did you come to terms with your own addiction and, and beat it? So meth back in August, 20, 2007, I have to be really honest. I didn't go through a 12 step. I didn't, I, I remember several times I crushed the meth pipe and threw my meth down the toilet and flushed it. And the next day I was like, crap, why'd I do that? And then went and got more. Um, I truly don't remember my actual aha moment of meth, which is weird. Anybody else remembers exactly. So like you didn't hit rock. There wasn't like a rock bottom moment. Well, no, no pun intended. What really, <laughs> What really happened was, you know, I went to live with my mom. She was like, hey, stay sober. She, she helped me get a photography studio. So I was like pouring into entrepreneurship. But I would say it was, they say relapse is a part of recovery. And a lot of people think that's a controversial thing to say. I would have to agree on that because the first, I was a month sober, I relapsed. And it was the worst, like one of the worst days in my life. And then another month sober, I relapsed. It was like the second worst day of my life. And the reason why I relapsed both times is because the stress and the pressure and being overwhelmed of having to fix all the shit you fucked up, like your bad credit, your relationships, yeah. all that. You're like, okay, let me just escape for a day and do some meth. Well, both days I did that. One of the days I got arrested and the other day I almost died because <sighs> I accidentally almost overdosed Jeez. on methadone thinking it helped me go to sleep. Jeez. But when... With that being said, um, I am only five months clean and sober from everything. So if you ask me even 20 years from now, I will never forget the day I got sober and when I decided to 
alcohol has been hands down the hardest thing that I've ever had to conquer. Why? And why? Why? Well, because even through the whole past 15 years, I realized, so I got off meth and then I poured into alcohol, not realizing it because it's society, uh, society accepts it. And yeah, it's everywhere. For me, I guess in my mind, you know, I'm helping a bunch of people. I'm mingling with millionaires and billionaires. We're all drinking. Um, even if I get really, really drunk and I have a hangover the next day. And people all around me, even though I was destroying myself with alcohol, nobody wanted, nobody else thought I had a problem. When I told people I had a problem, they're like, no, you don't. It's the it's addiction. Stressful. Whether it be meth or alcohol, they're both, they're both downhill if you have that type of, of, of it's, it's, a sick, it's an illness. Yeah. So one in eight people have an alcohol problem. And, you know, ever since I got sober from alcohol, selfishly, I did not want to start posting about it or telling anyone about it until like a year of sobriety under my belt. Cause I thought people would think that I didn't have the credibility to keep running my program if I was struggling myself. But I realized that I, I needed, I wish there was a professional, successful young woman who was sharing their journey. And then, so I could relate and understand that. Okay. Cause for me, all I saw were people that were 20 years in recovery talking about how crazy they used to be and now life is good. Yeah, but how about now? How about present? How about people that are in the same boat as you? Yeah, so I'm interviewing people and I'm, I'm really re taking it to the next level on um, helping others. We're coming out with an app that's going to help you through virtual recovery because for me, it, all it took was education. So I got a DWI in 2017. While I'm running Cornbread Hustle, I'm in handcuffs and I'm going to jail. And Shit. I still thought to myself, I just got caught. Everyone drinks and drives. And oh, well, it's just a misdemeanor. I mean, think about it. I work with, and all my hustlers were like, it's just a misdemeanor. Just go sit that shit out. But when I had to go through DWI education and get the breathalyzer on my car, it really, made, first of all, they said only 2% of US drivers get DWIs. And I was like, then I must've been drinking and driving a lot. And then I realized how much I was drinking and driving because I had the breathalyzer on my car. and. Mm. I had to change my plans almost every single day around not drinking. And so it was Christmas morning, um, just back in December. I woke up and out of nowhere, I decided to give myself the gift of sobriety. But it's still, I wasn't in recovery. I've been sober many times my whole life, but I never thought to myself, I have a problem with alcohol. I'm giving it up. I'm in recovery. So it was just straight up. I'm going to give myself the gift of sobriety. And then I, I went to church on New Year's Eve trying to stay away from the bar, just trying stay to stay away. away. I, I thought it was the stupidest thing ever. These people are worshiping some fake guy. And now, of course, the pastor's asking for money and something happened. The Lord saved me and I became truly in recovery at that moment. And so now I'm, e I'm even teaching the Bible in prisons. I've got somehow, I don't know how that happened. And um, The power compelled you. The power compelled you. I love it. And good, good for you. And what, what I love about you and your story is the, you've exhibited unbelievable transparency and vulnerability and humility, and you've harnessed it into building a tremendous personal brand, professional brand. You know, how, how have you taken that personal story and really leveraged it to build Cornbread Hustle? You know, it's really crazy because it's, I, I just got off the phone with one of my employees the other day. I was crying my head off because I just watched that rocket man 
And I didn't realize it was going to be so much about addiction. It started in an AA group and the movie ended in an AA group. And I was like, yeah. what the hell? I didn't, I wasn't ready for it. Not, you thought it was just like a rock opera, the Alton rock opera, but it's not. <laughs> it's not yeah. on Yellow Brick Road. Oh. And I was crying and I was just like, why do I have this problem? Like even Elton John struggled. Like, how am I going? Like, it's just me. Like how, like I have the biggest fear of failing people now. And he really told me something that stuck with me and will change my life forever. He told me about the Bible where Paul complained about the thorn in his flesh and that the Lord said, it's going to stay here because it's what keeps you humble and it's what's making you who you are today. And it did make me realize I wouldn't be going to church every Sunday if I wasn't an alcoholic. I think I got it and I'd be doing it my way. So I have to, on a daily basis, look at my addiction as a strength instead of a weakness. And although it was scary oh for God. me to come out and talk about it as a founder of Cornbread Hustle and as an expert in prison reform, all that it's done is open so many doors and create more opportunity. Because guess what? If someone like me who started a program who works with people in recovery every day and is successful and is a motivational speaker struggles this hard with alcohol, how many people can relate? A lot, lots, many, many. That's, it's, it's just an incredible story. Wow. Um, you've come a long way and, and I applaud you for that. And what would you say to this date has been your greatest accomplishment? Um, being sober That's for it. five months. Love it. I've yeah. never been Tremendous. sober my entire adult life since I was 15 years old, longer than three months. And I wouldn't even... Those three months were challenges that I made for myself to prove to myself I wasn't an alcoholic. So I've never been in recovery my entire life, and this is my first time. So having five months of sobriety under my belt is my greatest accomplishment because everything else follows. I'm, I've always already changing people's lives, and I was already motivational, but not to the degree that I am now. It's and it's all because of sobriety and God. So I'd say my biggest accomplishment is being humble enough to seek God and to also make the unselfish decision to give up alcohol because there's too many people that need me to be sober. What a story. I love it. Cherry, two questions that I ask every guest at the, at the end of interviews. First one, what is your superpower? What do you do better and different and that's just inside of you that you know came to the surface recently or it's something that you've had all along that's your superpower what is it empathy i think my superpower is empathy i don't think i feel like i have an inner strength that i don't it was gifted to me and sometimes I'm angry that I have it. I'm like, can I not just be drunk like any other 20 something, or I'm 30, not 30 something year old and have a good time without the feeling that I have to make a difference. I just feel like my superpower is empathy and having that power allows me to really get on the same level as somebody struggling and walk with them through their transformation. It's, it's deep and it's not something, empathy is not something that you could create. It's, it's internal and it's deep inside. And Cherry, when, when things are great, when things are going, you know, everything is going awesome for you. And in turn, when things are shit, when you're having the worst day, when you feel like you want to have another drink and go back to the drugs, what is your North Star? What do you look to to pull you up? Well, that's every single day that I want to drink. Um, 
and I, I am just, I can't stand holy rollers <laughs> to get holy rolly. And I, I'm not a Bible thumper, but honestly, and I hate to even use this because I don't want people to think they have to find God to get sober. But for me, I go to the Bible and I look for answers. And that's the only thing that gives me strength because other than that, I guess maybe since I'm such a control freak and I have a lot of anxiety, it's the act of letting go of my power and allowing what happens to happen. So my advice to anybody else is to find your way to be okay with letting go of power, regardless if you're worshiping a tree outside. I don't care. Like let the tree make your decisions for you and just get underneath it and pray. I think they talk a lot, a lot about that in AA. I'm actually not an avid AA goer. I don't really work the steps. I do things my way. Um, and there's a lot of people out there that think that AA is the only way I don't. Um, there's definitely a lot of Christians out there that think God's the only way I personally, because of what happened to me, believe God is the only way, but I'm not going to push that on anybody else. Cherry, what's the single best piece of advice that you've ever received? I would say I've received a lot of advice that really sticks with me. But I think a, a good piece of advice is don't take advice from people's from people whose shoes you don't want to be in. And there's a lot of people out there telling you how you should do things. Rather, you just had a kid and other parents are telling you how to parent your kid, but you're looking at them and you're like, I don't even want their life anyway. But you let it get to you and you start listening to their advice or listening to their criticism. And there's a lot of times that as entrepreneurs, we get really nervous and we start seeking advice from just anybody. And before you know it, especially for me when I was drinking, before you know it, you're three hours into a conversation allowing a school teacher to give you advice on how to manage felons and <laughs> your payroll. Right. Because you just, you, you're not being strategic on your getting advice. So the best advice I ever got was on how to seek advice. I love it. I love it. And, and we'll end it on that, Cherry. I mean, fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to meeting you in September and keeping our, our relationship going and just creating synergy. Thank you. And Thank you. closing thoughts here. Second chances is a concept that most of us believe in and have received many times in our life. But for those incarcerated, a second chance could sometimes be out of reach. Public perception and stigma of ex-convicts hold strong and make finding a new life when you're on the outside incredibly hard. What if all you were known for was your worst mistake? And what if you had a second chance to be known for something else? And this is what Cherry Garcia has done by creating Cornbread Hustle and giving many that second chance, the same second chance that she's had multiple times. And not just to give them a job, but to empower them with a career and a life change. And that's what's critical here. Cherry, I applaud you, I admire you, and I deeply respect you. You are the embodiment of second chances yourself and paying it forward for others, and that's incredible. And I hope that this week's episode inspires you out there to give someone that second chance. Step out of your comfort zone, pay it forward. Incredible. Cherry, where could folks connect with you? Um, I'm all over LinkedIn, but cornbreadhustle.com. I'm a control freak, so I see every email <laughs> that comes in. So if you just wanna contact me there, um, our Facebook, every single place that you can contact me or Cornbread Hustle, it is me looking at all the messages. That is a little bit of control that I'll never let go. I love it. And we'll, and we'll have all that links below. Sherry, thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. 
And to everyone listening, thank you for joining us again on the podcast. It really means a lot to me that you guys listen and you contribute and you comment. We're really trying to build something special here. Please follow us on all the social media channels. The links will be below. Subscribe, comment, network. And remember, take your online relationships offline. Cherry, thank you for joining us and everyone out there. Thank you and stay tuned next week for another incredible episode of the podcast. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode jam-packed with more incredible humans. For more info, please visit www.nhptalentgroup.com.